Thank you very much. I'm back on again, Vince. Yep. Good. I've been a, a very happy member of, member of the Rare Book School staff for some little while now, but uh, I'm delighted to get an opportunity to inflict the ritual evening misery on, uh, on all of you for the next little while. It so happens that in order to show off what we do during nationally televised basketball games, one of our local our, our university TV production folks have put together a 30-second slot that took about three days to film that um, says everything I have to say and more. So I thought I'd play this. We are pioneers of setting books and manuscripts free on the internet. Tens of thousands of people from all over the world use our collections every day. Digital media impact every aspect of our lives. We're empowering people to be intelligent users of these new technologies. The internet is changing our role as a university. We're helping to transform the ways teachers teach and students learn. The campaign for the University of Virginia, making its mark. You can send your money in for the capital campaign to our development office anytime you like. <laughs> what I really wanted to do this evening was to mull on some of the to explain some of the things we've been doing to put some context to this, but this isn't uh, intended to be, nor will it be, uh, uh, look what we done, look what we done good session. Um, but I certainly will be drawing on items that we've done here in Rare Book School using digital technologies we've done at the university in a larger setting. Um, but I'd like to start with a little bit of background on what we see the, the library as being um, in um, the digital library, which is increasingly a, a term that is largely meaningless, I think. It's, it's the library. Um, as the digital stuff is reaching so many aspects of what we do, it's harder and harder to separate out the digital from the non-digital materials, but also to, to at least pose the question of why it is that we have such activity over so many years here in one of America's most bookish of universities. And what is it about the primordial soup of Bowers and Jefferson and now Bellinger and Vandermeulen and David Gantz and so forth um, that make this fertile ground for doing what I've been doing for a while and what others are going on to do? It's not coincidental, I suspect, that um, a supremely bookish institution and a book arts institution embraced electronic books and electronic texts and some of the tools that we have at our disposal very readily uh, and very early and with increasing amounts of intellectual and, and financial investment. So what do we do? We, we do e-books or whatever they're called this week. Um, we deal with larger and larger amounts of standardized, interoperable, online content that at one point of its life was a book or a manuscript in most cases and that is now reshaped into something that can, as much as a screen can, can perform as a book. It's got pages, you can turn them. If you have a rocket book, you can push a button and it'll turn the pages for you. Who doesn't want uh, a device that does that? Oh, I can pass this around if anybody's even faintly interested in handheld book technologies. I need it back. Um, <laughs> the... Um, 
So we deal with objects that have a mark record very often. How more bookish can they be? Yet they're also put together in an environment that lets them work, lets pieces of them work interactively with pieces of other things in ways that are, that are inconceivable um, in a pre-digital book era. There's a, a, a commonality of appearance and interface um, to them. And I think increasingly we're beginning to realise, as you do very quickly, that there's not a, a cancelling out of items and objects. Our knowledge, our pleasure is, uh, is really best served by a combination of book and machine devices. Um, and certainly you, you, you realise as you start working, even if you come to it grudgingly or you come to it with um, uh, scepticism, that, and especially if you come to it with a bookish bent, that a machine as a book really can break that inherent um, loneliness and isolation paper in boards. Um, in our post-hypertext word world, it's increasingly sad, I find, uh, and one day it'll be quaint to read a printed book and find a citation and to think of those, those things that you can't click on. Um, this poor little thing that can't play well with others. It knows over the fence there are other things to play with, but it can't get there. All it can say is, you go, you'll find it. Um, Hypertext, I think, in, in, informs us in ways that some people are beginning to articulate. Um, I'm sure my speaking style has altered. It's more frenetic. It's less reading a text. It's more pushing buttons. It's more hypertext than it was ten years ago um, when I had a rather different reason for standing up and speaking, mostly at uh, literary conferences. So what have we got? Why should you care? We've got stuff is why you should care, and we've got stuff in larger and larger amounts and in more and more diverse languages. Uh, searchable Japanese. This is not an English language operation. We've got vast amounts of bits and pieces that we buy, all of English poetry, um, that plays very nicely with English verse drama or American poetry now, or the OED, or these various other pieces. We're moving fairly quickly from a world in which we conceived of collections on CDs, that first wave of, you can search all of X on a round piece of plastic if you come to the right room, to a period where we've largely here, I hope, moved through the, the inevitable first stage where you get it online. This is, this is the first goal. You get it up there. If you're sitting at home in your pyjamas and you simply have to you wake up in the middle of the night and you simply have to search all of English poetry, it's there. It takes five seconds once the modem's up. Um, this has become so commonplace that now one complains that it takes five seconds to search all of English poetry. A healthy thing, I suspect. We're moving very rapidly into the use of these technologies to present, to build, to articulate, to um, explore objects that have been special by designation, um, but not by, and, and limited because of that specialness, but certainly not limited by audience. Um, a couple of very quick examples from earlier rare book schools. Um, Edgar Allan Poe. This is a virtual exhibit of Poe. It combines Poe materials from a variety of different sources, 
It combines letters, nice big po head, com um, combines letters from a number of archives. A trivial point, but these things are never physically going to be in the same room. Um, and this was part of our work in Rare Book School last year. We're delving into our own collections more and more. And delivering, in this case, a set of letters from also a Rare Book School production. Uh, we get our money's worth out of our Rare Book School class because we build real content. Stuff that's still there the next time you look. Um, this is a collection of slave, ex-slaves, writing back from Liberia where they're resettled, writing back to their ex-owners. Wonderfully potent documents. And as our stuff usually is, it's available in a variety of different magnifications of image. The aim is to try and bring the, to the degree that's feasible, to bring the experience of the document, <clears throat> the book, um, to you. And it's there in one or more transcribed shapes, textual, searchable transcriptions. What we discover as we do these sorts of things, as we do what we're building this year, a series of Civil War letters, is that increasingly, and this is literally what's in production now, um, increasingly our sense of ourselves is challenged. When we started doing special collections, and like everybody, we draw on our strengths, uh, Civil War, African-American, early American fiction. When we started doing these things, in particular, the, in particular the raw stuff of history and literature, those raw materials, inevitably we knew in the mid-90s that there would, be, there would be other interests. There would be the people who use these now, the people who we could reasonably predict would like to use them but can't come, and then there'd be some assorted others for whom this specialised material, this is a bill of sale, um, would have some, some interest, scholarly or otherwise. What we were completely unprepared for and are still largely unarticulating is what happens when you put out, by our terms now, larger and larger archives of raw stuff, stuff literally that is otherwise not going to be part of the teaching or research or, or hobbyist interests of the users. And you put those together with the great unwashed. You put those together with an internet that's now... There's more internet users than people on the planet. Every time you look at those numbers, somehow... They, um, huge numbers of people. Our average user is not us. Our average used to, user used to be us. In the dim, distant past, it used to be just us. Um, certainly measured numerically. The people who are coming to us using our books and manuscripts, those that are freely available, which is the bulk of them, are really in the last two years, everybody but us. And it has some interesting implications on what it means to be a university, academic, bookish, book arts operation because eventually, as much as you like to say, as much as we like to say, here's our mission, and if the rest of the world want to use us, that's great. 
you eventually have to face up to the fact that you're doing something and you're one and a half percent on a good day of the, of the activity. And sooner or later, the other 98.5 percent need a vote in what goes on. These are, I mean, there are stats, web stats, and then complete and utter lies. And th these are the usual range of things you'll see. Number of hits, which is largely meaningless. Number of documents, a bit more meaningful. Number of unique machines. These are out-of-date numbers, as stats always are. Um, number of people, somewhere between the number of machines and the number of documents. Uh, the numbers are largely irrelevant. What is relevant is there's lots of them. We're open 24 hours a day. There's no downtime. That's a flat curve across the day, practically. Um, they're using things that you wouldn't imagine they'd be using in their thousands, and they're coming from everywhere. You know, we have to get maps out to find some of these places. And they're coming back, and they're coming back, and they're bringing their friends, and they're bringing their neighbors, and um, they're making uses that we don't really have a grip on yet. How is it possible that a humanities collection which specializes in oddities, including the book arts, can do this? Do they think we're a porn site? Is there some keyword somewhere that they're hitting on um, and they're expecting uh, uh, somewhat less than they get, somewhat more than they get? Um, no, that's clearly not the case. Uh, you can certainly generate massive traffic with the right keywords, but the web is a savvy institution and they sort out fairly quickly. They don't keep coming back to look at naked manuscripts if that's not what they want. <laughs> as we start pulling all this stuff together and watching as best we can how people use it, we, um, we see a couple of other things too that emerge fairly quickly. One is all sorts of partnerships. This is an environment that's almost impossible to be isolationist in. There's all this nonsense and chatter about the next generation of teenagers never leaving their bedrooms and developing long fingers because they poke around with a keyboard all the time, and their communities are all virtual. Um, certainly what we see today is that it, it brings certainly interdisciplinary um, collaboration of a scale that we certainly haven't seen at this university before, but you also get data partnerships. If you build the stuff properly, and by Friday, about a third of you will know what that means intimately and painfully, if you build the stuff properly, then we can get closer and closer to an environment where collections remain collections. The Civil War letters make sense as a collection um, in the electronic world as much as in the print world. But they can also be citizens in a much larger data landscape. Um, we like to talk about data that plays well with others. And increasingly, yeah. uh, if it doesn't play well with others, it ain't going to be in the game. Um, for crass commercial reasons, I'm going to come back to our ability to interface with crass commercial opportunities a little bit later on. Uh, I'm a big fan of crass commercial opportunities. The, the data that exists online is better than that which sat on a piece of plastic, each with its own interface, every tub on its own bottom. Uh, this is better, but it's only incrementally better. That is, it's better because you, it follows you around. We, the library's stalker is a model you hear a lot in the, uh, the library communities now. But there's no way you can be where it doesn't hunt you down. Um, but still too often these things are the online equivalent of CDs. It's a common interface, it's a common metaphor. Um, they work the same, but they don't work together anywhere nearly well enough. And a lot of our work here now is 
doing the plumbing to make them work. And as those of you who are traditional librarians can guess, the plumbing is cataloging, uh, it's description, it's control data, it's, it's uh, name authority files, it's the things that you can say about items that give them a coherence, uh, whether they're paper or not. It's very, I've already told my group this, it came up in conversation today, um, it's very important in this environment that you use the right terminology. This is a, 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 a childlike discipline still, and, and it likes its nomenclatures and its modish vocabulary. Um, cataloging is, is not a word to use uh, unless you want to suffer the consequences. Metadata is the word to use, and you get paid twice as much if you're a metadata engineer than if you're a cataloger. Um, sometimes three times as much if uh, it's an internet startup. So there are ways then that we can start building and thinking about this thing so that when a book comes into the library, a digital book in the digital library, the Rutledge Encyclopedia of Philosophy being one example, wonderful resource, has its own utility, its own life, um, works very well as a thing, as an object, but it's also simultaneously... Who am I looking for here? Lewis Carroll, there we go. It's also simultaneously a thing that's stuffed full of cross-references. It bounces around within itself from De Morgan to Ball to somebody else. Um, what it doesn't do, because our users are not really this far along and our publishers are not this far along, it's not pre-wired for a data landscape. right? It's got all these wonderful references to things it, it's got inside it, which are cross-references. It's got absolutely no ability to take you to the hunting of the snark, which is also online. It's also in my rocket book. It's also in my palm pilot. It has no ability to cross-reference, even in the same online landscape. We've had to build that in. We've built it in. There's a button, you push it. There's the hunting of the snark. Um, those of you who saw Greer Allen's uh, wonderful... Uh, representation of the images in this last year can come here and the images are online and so forth. Um, so increasingly, we are ahead of the publishers, ahead of our users very often, um, are beginning to see what happens when we start to conceive of collections that are so described that they're simultaneously a coherent piece and also this great self-identifying mass. Uh, the commercial implications are relatively easy to think of. The data partnership implications don't take very much thinking either. For example, um, this is one of our projects, the uh, Early American Fiction uh, digitizing project uh, supported generously by the Mellon Foundation, putting rare books online. We'll come back to those in a second. Um, one of the things you can do, for example, and this is a trivial, embarrassing, give us more money example for a grant review, but one of the things you can do in this sort of data landscape is trust but verify. The searchable OED is a wonderful, incredible tool. You can, you can use it to ask questions you couldn't dream of asking, and you can waste hours playing with it. It's, it's a wonderful thing. And one of the questions you can ask is um, how many words did X add to the English language? That is, how many times does X appear in the earliest quoted usage quotation? 
and one of the things that it records is the earliest known usage. Jefferson pops up a lot, uh, as you'd imagine, perhaps. Um, this is not really critical of the OED. It's not really fair. They don't represent early American fiction very well. But sure enough, you pop in a few early American authors and you get the OED over here saying that Nathaniel Hawthorne first uses blood relatives in 1863. You ask the same question of the content of the dictionary and you get two, two answers. One of them, um, somewhat more intriguing, that Fenimore Cooper uses it 20 years earlier. Trust but verify. It's a power that's in, sometimes the authors write the works wrong and so on and so on. A simple, single, graspable example of what happens in a data landscape. It's not to say that the OED is any more magisterial, any less magisterial rather. It's not, uh, um, the point isn't that. The, the point is that there's, there's an inherent uh, power, if you can get these things playing well together, that um, is unrealized otherwise. And it's largely at the moment unrealized by the publishers although they see it when we demonstrate it uh, in our settings here. And you can think of any number of other examples of what happens when you bring disparate bodies of material that typically don't live together together. Uh, EAF is interesting as we pass through for, for another um, slightly more digital reason it's because of the nature of the material, it is simultaneously searchable, full text, encoded in SGML, XML, for those of you who collect acronyms. It's also, and you can come to it as a page image collection as well as a text collection, it's also a full set of page images for every page, every spine, every end paper, every piece of the book. And they're done in colour, and they're done to print quality. And there's a lot of them. It's a lot of data. It's two and a half terabytes of raw data. It's also, which used to sound like a lot. People used to gasp when I said that. And they now say, how much memory does my machine at home have? Am I up to a terabyte yet? It's not that much any longer. Um, there are satellites that put out a terabyte a day of raw data. So, um, and who cares about that? This is um, the first 60 years of American prose fiction. And it's here in such a way that we, as much as we can, it's always hubristic to say things like this, but we can largely guarantee that we can support uses, uses of identifying individual pieces of type, for example, uh, of these digital files um, for some period to come. We can also start to think about what it means to play in a three-dimensional space with a book object. Uh, it sort of looks like a book. You can move it around in the space, and if I click on the right button, which I think is that one, spin it around on one axis, or, I believe, you can turn it in three-dimensional space. Um, so what do you do with hundreds of books that you can spin like this? Well, <laughs> uh, that's a very good question. I'm glad you asked. We have no idea yet what you do. Um, we can now open it up, which is technically really cool, but then what do you do? Um, it looks like a chocolate box. Well, it has some potential for allowing us to start to think about interfaces. What does it mean to have an interface to rare books that 
is a somewhat clumsy, blockish representation of the book itself. Um, even if this is only a clickable navigational thing to get you to really high resolution versions of the same thing, um, it brings back scale. Little books can be made to look little again. You all know how quickly scale goes on the internet. Big books, little books, how do you know? Um, so there's a comparative value to a shelf full of books that you can pull off. And there's a gee whiz factor which, frankly, is, is dangerous to overlook um, as long as that's not all you have. And thankfully, that is not all we have um, in this collection, at least. Let me show you very quickly. that the, These are the poor cousin images that go online. But if you're not generally familiar with what the sort of the state of the art in archival imaging, which is utterly distinct from preservation imaging. Preservation imaging is usually crappy, one-bit, black-and-white images shot off microfilm for dubious preservation reasons. I'm not a big fan of preservation microfilm. Oh, God. Um, this is archival imaging, which is quite distinct because, well, um, because it looks like this. And even though this is the derivative, this is the JPEG for those of you who are who are, um, for whom that means something. This is not what we shoot. Even so, it's good enough to give you um, a good amount of visual information. And it's good enough in a purely non-scholarly way for those thousands of teenagers, high school kids who come in, to give you a sense of what an old book looked like. It's nothing in my mission statement says that I need to help educate 12-year-olds from Germany. Um, but we sure got a lot of them. And... What they come to most forcefully, what they come to in droves, is our sort of stuff. They come to pictures of rare books, they come to manuscripts, especially the manuscript material. Um, they come to archival objects, and they come partly because they're there in colour, partly because there's, there's that suspension of disbelief that you can touch this thing. And for most of them, and this is equally true, I'm sure for many of the students who come from Virginia high schools, it's sadly, as you know, perhaps better than I, equally true of many of our undergraduates and graduate students, even in places like this where they could walk into a library and get their hands on one of these things. But this is the only time, the first time perhaps, um, and for many of them the only way that they can get even a facsimile sense of a historical artefact or an old book. The Scarlet Letter does not look like the Norton Anthology version in the version that Hawthorne knew. Who knew? It didn't. Um, so, we see a number of a number of early flickerings of things that are going to come back to um, be of some benefit to the likes of us, I suspect. And one of the lessons that's coming clear is that all that business chatter in the last couple of years in the, the more business-speak side of the library world about disintermediation. What we need to do is get the intermediaries out of the way, and then life will be good. Um, you stick archives on the web. All of early American fiction is on the web. It's not actually free. In this case, you have to pay for it. Um, some of it's free. But nonetheless, there's huge amounts of stuff going up, and it's going up in archivally appropriate ways. There are finding aids. Um, there are guides, there's mark records. We do it good in library terms. So you've got the archives, and you've got everybody else over here. And they're finding them, they're using them, but amongst the, um, 
amongst all the chatter about how wonderful it is to put these people in contact with this data, is a steady drumbeat of email from especially teachers asking, usually saying, there's a number of genres of email I get, and one of them is this. It's, I love being able to see those Liberia letters, but I've no idea what to do with archival materials. I have no training. Is there a book I can read? Is there a rare book school I can go to? I mean, is there something I can do that will make it more comfortable for me to use that in the classroom, make me more in control of this thing? The disintermediation, which is a word that perhaps now its, it's value has disappeared, the word can disappear too, but um, it's really not the answer. The answer is quite the opposite. The answer is mediation. And we know this because having built lots of stuff and having encouraged lots of users locally to come and use it, local UVA users, some of them take us up on our word and they become not just consumers but producers of this data. And they come back to make our lives interesting with projects. Projects to show just a couple that have put all of the Salem Witch Trials court documents online, along with a whole bunch of other stuff related that's mining it in all sorts of interesting ways and that's building context around it. Uh, freely available, you can do with it as you like, or you can follow the context that's evolving. One of the contexts is geographic. There's a map interface in development that lets you look to see you know, how much was this neighbour accusing neighbour over the, the village, uh, over the, uh, the, the fence? How much was this um, between villages? How much? What's the temporal scale of this? Can you map visually on the GIS system the pattern of accusations and, and, uh, so, and court cases? Um, so on the one hand, very scholarly, very... Um, Focused, it has a very definite need, but also providing some general support for the high school kid who comes. The best example is Mark Twain in his Times. This is Twain in Tesla's electronics lab, electrical lab, touching two wires together. So we couldn't resist making an animated GIF. You see, the, the joke wears off. The, um, but this is this is something that's designed much more for the classroom. It's designed for. Um, survey courses in a variety of settings and it's very emphatically very self-consciously informed by what the students say they want by what they say works and doesn't work and it's clustered around the core book um, all sorts of things they're always amazed at the great ad campaigns the sort of Star Wars like promotional blitzes that um, accompany Huck Finn we've got the the sales prospectuses that the door-to-door -door salesman would come round with. So you can see the promo before you read the book. Um, they're very impressed by how much money Twain made on his lecture tours, uh, his Twins of Genius tours. What a wonderful title um, for a lecture tour. So th these, are, these are materials, often from special collections, uh, otherwise rare materials. It's connective tissue. It's the the prose that makes them worse um, from a very wide range of users. And we have some real prospective capabilities here in the book arts. Um, this is not done, it's not shown to you with her permission, although I'm sure she won't mind. It's purely an experiment. Um, but it was a, a brief experiment last year, year before last actually, perhaps now, 
with Sue Allen's um, course on bookbinding to see what we could do to take the material that she uses here, which is boxes full of disembodied covers. Oops. They may not all be here. I guess the details aren't all here. Um, boxes full of disembodied covers to see what we could do digitally to produce something that certainly doesn't replace them. The aim isn't to take over. The aim is, though, for something that otherwise is extremely difficult to get a grip on, um, to give you some highly rendered ability, perhaps to teach your own students, because Terry makes you leave those boxes behind. You don't get to take it home um, as a souvenir. And I think we're, we're on the track of something here. This is a... Um, it, was, it was illuminating in a couple of ways. It was illuminating both because... Uh, Sue was, was open and receptive to this, but um, I think was genuinely surprised at how well the detail would pick up. It was illustrative to me because it, it brings us back to that need for mediation, for some expert knowledge that shapes this. I spent a long time working on these images. I wanted to get them right. I wanted to impress her. I'm a big fan of Sue Allen's. Um, and about every other one, she said, oh, David, that's just wonderful. And then the next one was, no, 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 that won't do. And I couldn't tell what on earth the problem was. They were all done as best as I could do them. They were all done the same. And what she was noticing, of course, was that, because I had no idea what I was looking at or looking for, the light source, the way the book was lit, made some things that were concave look convex or vice versa. And therefore, it was a completely dangerous teaching example um, until we corrected it. But there's a lot of scope in the ability to take what archives are doing, what they're putting online, and to combine it with the sorts of abilities that the likes of us, the likes of you, have. Who cares? 140,000 hits a day, 140,000 documents a day says that somebody cares. We think we're up to about 35,000 discrete people. Uh, already using, not exclusively, but using often our sort of stuff, book art sort of stuff, using it not for our purposes necessarily, but interested. Uh, there's a hobbyist market out there. There's also... a rapidly growing... Um, you heard it here first, I'm not sure what the right word is, but a divisification of all of this. We're getting devices. I'm forever carrying around some piece of plastic that does something with an e-book. And I love, I love, I can't live without my Palm Pilot now. Um, the point is not that this is better than the book, although it holds a number of books. The point certainly isn't that this ghastly little thing is better than a book um, and very much a first-generation technology. But you can look at it and you can imagine what it could be uh, when it works. <laughs> I'll pass this round. It's, uh, it's what you think it is. It's a little digital handheld reading pad. Um, the days of assuming the position to compute are beginning to wane. Right? When we compute, we do this. It's a pose. If you took the computer away, you'd know the pose. You wouldn't mistake it for any other sitting activity. Um, you sit in front of one of these things you put a laptop on your lap and you do what you do with it but you're very much bound to an object 
And we're seeing very rapidly, and this is not fanciful at all, um, our everyday devices picking up some of these capabilities. These things are wired if you're not a cheapskate like me and you buy the one with the modem built in. Uh, I download the New York Times into this every morning. It's the only time I ever get to read the New York Times. It's not better than having time to sit at home and read it, but I'm not offered that option <laughs> at this point. Um, so it's, it's certainly a convenience. This, coupled with this, lets you put together quite literally anthologies, things that anthologies is too, too sort of kinkos-like a word, but um, to pull together disparate bodies of data that become your data for that moment in your device. We're seeing, to venture out onto the hairier edge a little bit, but it's an instructive one, because these people are hungry for data, and they're hungry for mediation, and they're hungry for information about data. We're seeing wearable computers. I, um, MIT is working very hard on what they call tech styles. Um, ghastly engineering pun. But literally, computing devices woven into fabrics and shoes. Nike's underwriting it, mostly for, 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 non, uh, for medical use and so forth. Your shoes monitor your blood pressure. Your earrings monitor your heart rate. Um, they both talk to each other over your fake conductivity. Skin's fake. You, you are your own network. Um, 18 months out. Electronic paper to actually struggle to get something back from my type. Um, wildly interesting. Looks like paper. Have, have any of you been in a country where the banknotes are made out of plastic? Australia, for example. I was there weeks before I realized it wasn't paper. It's plastic. You can shrink it in, in a washing machine. Um, it doesn't smell like paper if you set fire to it. I verified both of those things with cheap bills, so it's true. Um, digital paper is the same idea. It essentially has charged toner in it, little toner granules, and it forms the characters when it takes a charge. Simple idea. Um, but you only ever have one page. It just keeps reforming itself. And you can roll it up. That's a little further out. With us, almost, whether we want it or not... And I want it, I must say. I'm not a gadget person per se. I'm not a computer hobbyist um, at all. But I can see some value in, for example, in test markets as we speak. Internet-connected refrigerators. Who doesn't want an internet-connected refrigerator? The thing's got... Um, I, mean, I like cooking, and I never like to be very far away from my computer, and there's never anywhere in the kitchen that I can put my state-issue laptop without some fear of getting something in it that will be hard to explain to the auditors. Um, a screen set into a fridge door with a modem stuck in the back of the fridge and a barcode reader. You scan things into the fridge, you scan them out, it orders the groceries. Who doesn't want these sorts of devices? Um, microwave ovens that use the internet to download recipes. How long does it take to do my baked potato? Don't know. I'll check the Amana webpage. It takes this setting. Um, coffee machines that talk to palm pilots, that talk to cell phones. <laughs> really, I mean, you, you only have to carry this and the cell phone for a while before it drives you to distraction. I'm in an airport, I've got the cell phone, I've got this thing, the address is in here, I'm poking away here to get the telephone number. Why doesn't it simply know? Um, and you see where this is going. Or maybe you don't see where this is going. The um, Microsoft's working on the language that lets toasters talk to cell phones. And our lives will be better for them. This is not a bad thing. You don't have to own them if you don't want to. 
But, um, but that same sense of plays well with others, and that same sense of interplay is what's beginning to find its way into our devices as well as our data. Um, and those of you who go to archives um, can easily see the value of different types of portable devices that are wirelessly wired so that you can track something down um, as you sit there looking at material. A closing thought and then a competition and a magic, magic trick. I think the, all of those are uh, standard elements of rare book school lectures if you haven't been to them before. Um, closing remarks are to, to reiterate that we see a great resurgence in interest or a surgence, I'm not sure it's a re-anything, um, in the sort of stuff that we've beavered away in archives to preserve and to use in splendid isolation. We see when it's digitized, it finds markets. It finds people who are thrilled to see Civil War letters, not because they're scholars. They're sitting there, we're big on web TV. They're sitting there on their couch with their cordless mouse, reading archival documents. And they need us. They need the likes of me to stick them up there, but there's a burgeoning market in making sense of them, in making product from raw material. And somebody's going to do it. Um, it'll be a publisher or a group of publishers. It'll be an internet startup. Uh, you only have to mention books and e-books and the internet, and you've got 120 million in venture capital. Um, the market is very, very hungry for these sorts of things. And we are both able to be that mediating step. I was at a meeting of historians recently, and there was general angst that somehow the priesthood was getting screwed around with. Right? The documents were getting free. And what do you do when you let them free? People can get them, and they can do wrong things with them. They can come to the wrong conclusions. They can print them out and stick them up because they like the way they look. Um, and eventually, some there realized that this was an opportunity, that the rather parlous state of humanity's um, influence the last time I was in this room last week, there was a very eloquent talk from somebody from, from um, Michigan who was pointing out how irrelevant the humanities were to most people who weren't in it and to many people who were. <laughs> and this is a, an opportunity to take what we know well and perhaps uniquely and to market it in ways that are not immediately palatable until you sit and mull it over for a little bit. And they're not palatable just because you can make money. You certainly can make money, I suspect. But they're palatable because they have a social influence. Um, you know, we put these things up, and some of, the, some of the sort of feedback we get that is, that is, and this is heavily edited, they don't all say we're the greatest thing since Newtonian <laughs> physics. Um, a lot of them say, I mean, a lot of them are, in some ways nice harbingers of what the current folks think the internet is. 
They think it's an oracle. They speak into it. It delivers their paper in two and a half hours. Um, but what we also see is, um, is the social impact of this. People in, well, you can read this for yourself, but people in, in Soviet Georgia, for whom the internet is their library. That's all they've got to teach with. And there's no money in delivering manuscripts to Soviet Georgia, but there is a social impact. There's a warm and fuzzy feeling that comes from that as a byproduct. So the computers then are beginning the digital libraries, the archives, um, combined with our knowledge base, is beginning to provide an area in which we can, in fact, both use the power of these things to teach in new ways, to export rare book school courses, uh, in miniature at least, uh, in echo form, uh, but nonetheless in highly potent ways. And also allow us very often to see things that we simply can't see in a book world alone. See things in books and of books. Um, when we look at our machines as books, I think we see precisely this ability to see things in the machine rendition of the book that send you back to the object. The competition is, and you're excluded if you've ever worked for me, um, there's a brand new eTech Center mouse pad, one of the first 10 off the production line. For anybody who can tell me where the speaking of my book as a machine quotation came from in the title, and it's a, it's a quotation, and you're allowed to use electronic sources, should you want an eTech Center mouse pad? Excuse me? No. Uh, and. Um, although I don't honestly know where I got it from, didn't steal it from somewhere else, I must say. But um, uh, the magic trick is... Actually, not that. <laughs> Some of you may have seen this before. Um, if you want to see real magic, you need to talk to Vince who's the man with cards. Don't play for money with him. The, um, this is a pot boiler example. It's been around for a long time. You may have seen it before. But it's still a good one because, and it's a good closing point, I think, because it does show quite literally in ways that aren't simply a text search. We've all got blasé about having philosophy hits pop up when you think you're looking at literature. But if this allows us to see what the machines can do quite literally to let us see what you do not see otherwise. It's a snippet of a manuscript, a Matthew Arnold manuscript, and the letter actually runs this way. Um, so he finished the letter, my dearest mother, and he wrote up the margin and then he filled in the top, and this is where the date originally was running across. Um, so if this is the orientation of the letter, we're looking at it like this, and he filled in this top piece. And his sister, before she handed these letters over, went through them with another ink pen, another black ink pen, and she very deliberately, very carefully, looped through all the juicy bits, right through the middle of words, right through the gaps in words. Um, she obliterated the things that were mostly personal to the family. 
the last edition of Matthew Arnold's letters simply stops where this scribbling starts. There isn't even a footnote to say there's an obliterated passage. Um, the guy gave up. The current edition, which is being done by Cecil Lang out of this university, uh, this, the, the university press that's attached to this university at least, um, came to us and this must have been four or five years ago, and there were two things that were striking. One is that an elderly, lively, emeritus professor thought to come to the library with this question. This was not a computer question. It was a, a library question, he thought. And this was some sign of our success. Um, what he wanted to know, though, was could we magnify, in particular, this word and see what we weren't seeing? That is, could we digitize it and blow it up and see more? And the answer, of course, is no. If you digitize it and blow it up, it's just a big blob instead of a small one. It's no better than his magnifying glass. What neither of us really understood at the time was that if you build the data right, this is not a technology marvel. It's a librarianship thing. We got the data right. So the data's very rich. It's got lots and lots of color information in it. And because of that, a machine can take that information and exaggerate it to the point the human eye can see it. What we thought we had here very quickly is the word, um, the word drink. Looks like a D at this end. Looks like a K here. This is the gap between the words. There's no ascenders and descenders. There's an I in it somewhere. Uh, it's about his brother, um, Walter. Apparently Walter drank. So it was, it was a good conjectural emendation of the old school type. Um, the word is probably drink. And who's going to argue um, with that? What we discovered very quickly is that if we cycle it through a very, very simple process, you can do this with Photoshop. Um, the two inks separate quite dramatically. And suddenly you can see a lot more than you used to see, and you don't get the best effect through a projector. But um, the scribbling becomes blue, the underline becomes brown. It's a T quite clearly here, it's not a K, it's a D. We were right about that. Anybody want to guess? Deceit. Thank you, Matt. Deceit, yeah. Um, plain as day. In fact, if you're doing this online, you don't actually win anything. But um, <laughs> but you get congratulated. Who doesn't like to be congratulated? So the point of that then is partly to finish with the trick, partly to underscore the fact that the combination of appropriately made data, data that is nimble, that is rich, that can play well in a variety of situations, um, with some traditional humanistic needs, can, on occasion, provide some magic. I will finish there. I need my gadget back. <laughs> um, and you know where to find me if you think you want to win the mouse pad.